0: You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers, and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com.
1: G'day I'm Steve Vischer and I'm Grant McCarran, and we're from Plain Crazy Down Under
0: Australia's aviation show and you can find us at PlaincrazyDownunder.com. we reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi warbird restoration and aviation scene you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you Dave. Yeah good on you mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that, anyway? Well,
1: it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane.
0: The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota, and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz.
1: Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand Show with Dave Homewood. Have your attention, please. Uh, if you can take a seat, we'll get things underway. Welcome to the uh, 2014 Wings Over New Zealand Forum meet. Um For those who don't know, I'm Dave Homewood. Uh, I'm the guy who runs Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, and um, these meetings go sort of annually. And when I say sort of, this is. Uh, Not exactly annual because the last one we had was uh, September 2012 um, up at Don Sabritsky's, but um, yeah, so the semi annual. Um, We're going to have a number of interesting speakers today. Um, Our first speaker coming up is Larry Hill, he's going to tell us a few stories of fighter pilots he's known. Larry. Thank you.
2: i talking for Dave, because I spoken yet. It might be really boring. I look around the room, you know, Dave called me when he decided to, to have the day, and he said, um, you want to come? And I said, how many people are coming? He said, none, I've only spoken to you so far. I said, oh, I haven't. He said, would you like to speak? And I said, well, oh, yeah, Who, how many speakers have you got? He said, none, just you. <laughs> and the truth is, actually, I've never been, I've been an aviator, but I've never been in the air force, so my stories are just secondhand. And, um, but I do tell stories. <laughs> Um, and I see some p- interesting people here, I see Brian Cox here, now Brian taught me to fly, 1970, Still alive. and I'm <laughs> still alive, and that's excellent, because I had an engine failure, and I remembered what he said, <laughs> and I got down safely, actually Brian you're uh, responsible for a, a, a huge amount of money gone out of my pocket, and I'll be looking for recompense <laughs> recons- <laughs> shortly, my son, I, taught, I took him flying when he was about 5, I didn't want to rush him into it, He's now a commercial pilot, and it's cost me a lot, (laughs) and I thank you for that, actually. He's uh, very happy in his career. So, yeah, so Dave, um, I made some notes so I don't get sidetracked, but um, my claim to fame is that I wrote a book, which nobody wanted to buy, but I really liked doing it. And um, my wife said uh, that it was uh, a madness, you know, why did he do it? Oh, it's a madness, and it was. It was a bibliography of everything ever written about New Zealand aviation. And I kind of thought I'd nailed it when I got to 768 different publications, but since I published the book, I've now got about another 200 that have cropped up. And I've, I've actually got the, um, the best library on this stuff in existence. I think I've got it because I like the thrill of the chase. I've read a lot of the books, I haven't read all of them, but I've read a lot of them. And um, there's some really good ones and some really bad ones, and I've got about 250 privately published manuscripts that Ehrman have written. Uh, but, so people would think, oh, that's this guy, that's the guy that collects books, but actually I collect people. And uh, my wife will tell you that. I really enjoy the company of others. And what I'm going to do today is um, tell you a little bit, a few stories. I've got about 20 minutes. If you get bored, just nod off and I'll take that as a hint. Um, I'll tell you a few stories about that people have told me. And why I would like to tell these stories, because, you know, when, when you look back on it, um, after the war, after World War II in particular, and, and World War I was the same, People had had it, they didn't want to talk about it, they threw everything out. I met a Battle of Britain pilot that threw out his logbook and his medals, and he goes, oh, I was just sick of it, you know. And he was 90-odd, and I thought maybe he um, he, he should have kept them. But um, they, were, they were sick of it, like it took it out of them, and it aged them prematurely. But later on, they realised that this was a really important part of their time, notwithstanding the death and destruction, but there were some things that I, perhaps we could learn from, like um, the sense of comradeship, a neighbourhood of people, a sense of purpose, they, they believed they were doing the right thing and so on. So um, then they reflected on it. And I remember, um, you, you might remember Clive Cordwell. Clive Cordwell was the highest scoring Australian fighter race. And when he was older, in his 80s, they interviewed him on TV and this woman said to him, looking back, what's your number one recollection of World War Two? And he looked at her and he said, people are going to hate it that I say this, but I was completely entertained by World War Two. He said it was all those things, it was a sense of purpose and I haven't had that in my business career and he was a big businessman and so on. And uh, Doug Brown, a 485 squadron pilot uh, who died just recently uh, in his early 90s, uh, a well-respected businessman, a, a delightful person if you ever met Doug. Uh, he said that, um, uh, he said he once told me, he said war was a nasty business and I wouldn't want to go through it again. But also wouldn't have missed it for anything, it was a marvellous experience. And I think that's... Um, if you talk to the veterans now they would say the same thing, that the death and destruction was awful and it was uh, like people did age and it, it drove them nuts, um, some of them. But looking back there was a whole bunch of benefits that they got in their lives. So I've been around and talked to a whole bunch of aviators in the process of collecting the information for my bibliography and I've been privileged to meet a whole bunch of really interesting people and uh, they told me things. and. Um, some of them are humorous, and it, I don't um, want to put them down in any way. I have the greatest respect for them. But I thought you might like to hear a few of the stories. Uh, John Checkets, one of the highest scoring New Zealand fighter races. He was actually quite old when he got there. I think he was approaching 30, and he did like lots of people, did he? He um, mishandled the Spitfire on his first flight. Uh, I, I met him quite a few times, and one day I said to him, I've asked a lot of people this, I said, tell me, John, were you ever scared? And he looks at me and he said, Larry, he said... I flew from beginning of '41, pretty much to the end of the war, but I was only scared once. And he went on to tell me how scared he was. Like, he took five minutes saying, oh, God, it's horrible being scared, you know, like you can't s- uh, think straight and you shake and you have to go to the toilet. And he went on and on like this. And he, he, uh, in the end, I, sh- I sort of brought him to a halt and I said, so, John, when was it this happened? And he said, son, you're not listening to me. Beginning of '41 to the end of the war. <laughs> <laughs> So another person that I met that you probably haven't heard of is a Battle of Britain pilot called Mick Shand, uh, DFC. Uh, Mick, uh, I think he was a flight lieutenant in the war. Um, he was shot down in the battle. And uh, but something unusual had happened to him, and I knew the story. But I rang him up, and I said to him, could I come down and meet you? And he said, that'll be all right. So I drove, from Auckland to Masterton. I got sick on the way. So I stopped in a motel, and I was a whole day late. It didn't seem to phase him. His first thing to me was he said, what do you want from me? I said, oh, I don't want anything. I just want you to tell me the story. And he said, what's that? And I told him, he said, why do you want me to tell you this? You already know it. I said, yes, but I only know it 10th hand, and I'd like you to tell me because then I'll have heard it from you. And so he told me the story. First of all, he said, oh, we were having lunch. I said, oh, you were shot down in the Battle of Britain. And he said... Oh, God, he said, we don't have to go there, do we? We were all shot down in the battle. Of Britain. <laughs> but later on, he got badly injured uh, in the battle and he was out of action for some time. And later on, he um, he was captured and uh, he was sent to Stalag Luft III and he was involved in the Great Escape. And uh, you'll remember the story of the Great Escape movies and so on. Um, he told me the story, so this is as he told me. And um, he said that, uh, that, that well, you'll notice that the tunnel didn't come out with, they had three tunnels and they thought, well if two got discovered, and they sort of almost allowed one to get dis- discovered, Tom, Dick and Harry they were called because you weren't allowed to talk about tunnels and they wanted to talk about it amongst themselves. So uh, they had a main tunnel and it was like 270 metre feet long and it didn't come out where they thought they were short of the trees and uh, there was all sorts of problems. They, they thought they were going to get like 200 or three, 280 people out. The objective was to frustrate the Germans by having POWs running around everywhere and they had to look for them. And uh, anyway, the, they, a lot of people were nervous in the confined space, hadn't been in there before, couldn't move through the tunnel, and it slowed everything down. A lot of people had taken suitcases that they wanted to as part of their disguise. They hadn't thought about that. They couldn't get them through the tunnel. Anyway, it came out short. So they sent a man to the trees and they ran a rope, and it was quite close to the fence. And when, they, when they, the guard came and turned his back, they on the rope, that guy would run away, and the next guy would pop out and he'd run on the rope. It had a little chain gang going. Well, Mick Shan came out of the tunnel, and the guy, the guard had gone for a pee, and uh, as he turned his back on the camp and walked away, the lights from the camp illuminated the steam coming out of the tunnel, and here was Mick Shan's head coming out of the tunnel. Mick, Mick was the last man out. And um, so he took off, his job was to keep people in, not let them out, and this was serious at wartime. And he was very excited, and Mick, expecting to come out in stealth, uh, came out with this guard yelling and screaming and a siren going and dogs barking. And uh, the guard took off his gun and pointed it at Mick's head. And the guy in the trees ran forward to distract the guard. And in the confusion, Mick was able to run away. So he was actually the last man to, to escape from the tunnel. And just talking to somebody that had that in in their history was sort of a privilege to me. Anyway, the story is this. As he's running through the bushes, the guy behind him comes out. And it was a very famous New Zealander with the Victoria Cross, Len Trent. They went to school together. And Mick says, as I'm running through the bush, Len comes out. By now, all hell's broken loose. bloody More dogs, more lights, more sirens. And the guard had fired off a few shots. And and Len came out of the tunnel. He couldn't speak German, but he knew that he was going to get shot. And so he put up his hands, and I have to read this because I get it to get it right. He put up his hands, and uh, he yelled at the guard. So Mick's Nick, running away in the bushes in the dark, and he, he wasn't very far away, like thirty or forty meters. And and, and uh, Len's coming out, and he yelled, "Poston, Poston, McSheehan." He, he meant to yell, "Poston, Poston, McSheeson, McSheeson. Don't guard, guard. Don't shoot, don't shoot." And what he yelled was, Polsten, Pol- Polsten, McScheisser, which is German for don't shit, don't shit. <laughs> so Mick's running off in the bushes. He said, I've burst into laughter. He said, well, My mate Len's back there telling the guard not to shit. He said, I am, he goes. <laughs> so that's, uh, that was a that was story about, about uh, Mick. I, uh, another man I met was a, a, a quite a successful fighter race called Warren Schrader. Uh, Warren, he was referred to as Smokey and um he um he was a, in the desert um uh, training people and he'd been doing it for a long time he was an excellent pilot later on in his life he was the chief pilot for nac so he went all the way through the war <coughs> flying fighters to flying 737s anyway um i go to see him and um and because i wanted to ask him about a particular thing and he told me in much more colorful terms am i allowed to swear dave <laughs> uh, i want to tell you exactly what he said but it, it's uh, got some swear words so forgive me but basically, um, uh, he, I said, he, said, oh, he said, I go to these reunions. He said, but people must have lived boring lives. He said, all they talk about is the war. He said, I can't remember anything about it. So I don't know why you've come to see me. So we chatted away. And uh, he was training pilots, and he was really good. And he said to the people in charge, I want to go on ops. And they said, oh, no, you're really good at this training stuff. And um, he said, well, if you're not going to go on ops, I'm going to go home. This is pointless. So they said to him, all right, we'll send you to a squadron. Uh, so they sent him to a squadron, and they said uh, it was uh, 486 Flying Tempests. And um, they said to him, you're pretty good at all this, so we think you should be the squadron leader, but because you've never actually served in operations, what we'll do is we'll send you to a squadron where the commanding officer's going to retire, <coughs> he's going to rest, and you can um, you can uh, take over in about two months. So off he goes. About about uh, a week later, the commanding officer was killed, and they said to him, oh, you better um, you better... Um, take over now, you think I'll be right? Yep. And he was very successful. He shot down, I think, about 16 aircraft in a very short period of time. So I said to him, so when you went from being a training bloke to being a commanding officer, uh, what rank did you move through in about uh, three months? He moved through these several ranks. He said, oh, I went from a pilot officer to a squadron leader uh, in about three months. I said, oh, that's incredible. Did you get a pay rise? He said, yeah, this is a guy that couldn't remember anything. He said, "Yeah, I went from two and fourpence to three and sixpence a week." <laughs> so, anyway, uh, he would, he did this for a while, and he shot down lots of planes. His skill at flying was excellent, and uh, the fighter pilots will tell you it's not easy to shoot down another plane. It's simply not easy. They didn't teach you how to. It was a lot of luck. Some people were good at it. Anyway, um, so. Um, Later on in the war, I'll come to the story about it in a second, but later on in the war they said to him, we want you to, uh, we took him aside and they said, we want you to, actually it wasn't much longer later, we want you to, we got a special assignment, we want you to become the first commanding officer of a squadron of jets in the Air Force and what we want you to do is take these jets and shoot down German jets. We want to see how our jets, which is a meteor, compared with a, with a, um, uh, 262 Michigan 262, and he said she said I'd seen a 262 he said these junkie jets were terrible he said we avoided them like hell but on the way to take this job because he thought it would be interesting uh, they said to him you know you, you, he was a squadron leader he said I don't want to go I'm just become a squadron leader here they said oh no it's really good so off he went and they said the whole squadron's made up of squadron leaders we don't need any more squadron leaders we'll make you a wing commander so he got promoted really quickly but one day, uh, when he was with um, some squadron, I think he was 486, he was on holiday, story I want to tell you, that he told me. And um, he took a break and they were in France and they were wandering around in France, him and his mate. And uh, they were at a base, and I forgot the name of it, unfortunately, but Johnny Johnson, the great, uh, the highest scoring RA fighter ace was the wing leader and the commander of this base. So him and his mate went away for two days break and they'd go around a corner and there in a the field was two Mr. 262s. And, this, and, and uh, he pulls up, they pull up, and there's a, a British guard there, and they said, what's the story? He said, oh, a couple of people surrendered today, and we got these. And he said, we're the pilots, oh, they're in the jail in town. So he went into the jail, he bought one back, and he said, I want to fly this. And I wanted them to tell me what it was like, and that's why I went to see him. And, and uh, but the story is actually much more colorful. He said uh, that um, the guy showed him how to fly this thing, and he had plenty of experience, so he thought it would be all right. He said, you've got a hell of a shock Push the throttle forward, because it was 100 miles an hour, faster than any of their aircraft that they'd flown. So they mucked around, and before they went, they rang Johnny Johnson, and they said, we're going to bring these two 262s to your base. Whatever you do, don't shoot us down. So off they go, and they they peered over the base, and no time at all was about 100 miles away. And and all of the people came out, everybody came out to watch. They'd never seen one up close, and he thought, "Hmm, everybody's watching, that's really nice, I might as well do some aerobatics so he put on an aerobatic display and he flew around and then um um he came to land and his front wheel wouldn't come down this was a problem the other guy landed so he uh he went up high he shook it he stalled it he tried everything he could do to get the wheel to come down and he couldn't get it down he realized he was running out of petrol so he had to land so he landed with the front wheel up and he skidded along the ground the plane caught fire and they rushed out and put it out Interestingly, this plane still exists in a museum in Norway. Anyway, so he's sitting there quite relieved to be back on the ground, thrilled by the experience, and Johnny Johnson comes over. Now, excuse my swear, but this is what Johnny Johnson said. And Johnny Johnson, um, uh, Alan Peart's here, and uh, he flew with Johnny Johnson in the early days, and he was first command of the squadron, and he was a polite gentleman. As he got more and more experience, he swore, swore all the time. And I met him when he was an old man, and he swore at me. And uh, he came out, and I hope you forgive me for the swear words, and he said to Smoky, he said, oh, I so he said, that's fucking amazing. He said, first of all, you bring this fucking incredible jet over, then you put on a fucking amazing um, aerobatic display, and you finish finished off with a fucking barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was Warren Schrader. Uh, Lester Smith, DFC, Lester flew um, um, uh, Pathfinder uh, Mosquitoes in Europe. And he's one of these people I've met, lots of them, who go, no, I just went to the war, I did my job, and I came home. So I said to Les, a really lovely man, he's passed away, that really delightful fellow, I said to him, "Um, something must have happened, and he said, no, no. He said, I did my 58 ops, I came home. He said, oh, no, there was one thing. He said, I was on a trip to Berlin to drop one bomb, and he said, it was really rough. And he said, and we were flying along at about 15,000 feet, and it was so rough that the navigator couldn't read the map. So he said, uh, the navigator said, can we go up a bit, see if it's smoother? And it was quite dark. And so up up they went, couldn't take so could look at his charts and his instruments. And they banged into another mosquito. And uh, he said, as I hit him, he said, I hit him with an engine on the on the left side. Uh, I realized this was gonna cause a problem for me and him. He said, cause I hit him with it, quite a bang. And he said, I was, the engine was gonna run rough. So I went to throttle back the engine as quick as he could to stop it running rough and shaking it to pieces. the propeller came off and it went in front of him had 365 degrees to go it went in front of him and it chopped the front of his nose off of the airplane's nose off was made of wood and he said it started to run rough the propeller came off chopped the front of the nose off he said the thing vibrated violently and the window fell out into the navigator's lap he just told me nothing (laughs) so uh, i said what did you do he said oh he said there was a 300 mile an hour wind in my face i had cuts the navigator was cut I thought we might as well go home. He said, so I dropped the bomb and went home. And this would be typical. And nobody ever writes about these things that are typical of experiences. Um, Keith Thiel, I've only got a couple more. won't bore you too long. Keith Thiel that is a highly decorated New Zealand bomber pilot. Uh, he's still alive, and he's, he's coming up to 90. When he was in his early 80s, he sailed a boat across the uh, Tasman single-handed. He's a, real, he's a really nice man. He's a bit blind now, unfortunately. But um, he got the DSO and three DFCs. He threw um, three tours of duty in bomber squadrons, a DFC for each one. And then he didn't want to stop, and and he said, well, can I have another go? And they they said, "Look, no, you've done enough. This is dangerous. What about fighters, he goes? (laughs) So they put him on fighters, and he actually shot down a couple of enemy aircraft. And I think he would have become an ace, except that he was taken prisoner for about a few months. But the the little thing he said to me is uh, he sold his medals. And um, I said to him, before I go, can I ask you a personal question? He goes, yeah, what do you want to know? And I said, well, why did you sell your medals? So, without a hesitation, he said, well, you can't drink medals. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, so he, he was a really interesting man. And especially when you talk to him about his after the war escapades. He flew the first jet into Australia, uh, 707 or something. A couple more. Uh, I'd like to tell this story because this is, this is a, heart, a very heartfelt story. I met a man called Owen Foster. Uh, Who's a 487 pilot, and Owen was uh, on the raid where Trent won his VC, and the whole squadron, I believe, didn't get back from the raid. They were bombing some uh, place in in Holland, and they got attacked badly by fighters, and everybody was shot down. Trent won a VC, and um, story goes like this: It's just lovely. He said that uh, in the mess, they were all young men, about 20 years old, and um, and uh, he said uh, they had it. They, you know, like young guys do. They weren't allowed to uh, fraternise with the female uh, NCOs or the people in the kitchen. They all sat around and they bet Owen that he couldn't take that woman out. And he wasn't allowed to. Anyway, he wanted to make earn this money, it was probably 10p or something. And so he invited this woman out. And he really liked her. And, um, and so um, he secretly started going out with her. And uh, then he went on this mission, and, he, and he, he'd been going out with it for a couple of months. He went on this mission, and he never came back. And he was a POW for three years. And so for the, he told me, for the first couple of months, he thought about it all the time. And for the rest of the time, he thought about food all the time. And he said that uh, I said, well, what happened? And he said, well, when I was uh, coming back, he said, I came, and I don't remember how this happened, but he came by boat back to England after the war. Most of them were flown back. He said, I got off the boat. And I thought oh, I'd just ring her up. I'd had plenty of food, and I started thinking about her again. He said but I was reasonable. And I thought that clearly she'd be married by now. I'd been away for three years. There was a lot of stuff going on. So he rang her up. And he said to her, um, this is Owen. And you've and probably forgotten me. And the, the phone went blank. And she said, after a few seconds, I've forgotten you. I've been waiting for you. And they got married. And uh, I met her, him just after she died. And he still had a, a tear in his eye. Two more perhaps, Uh, Doug Williamson. Um, Ron Mayhill told me a story one day about, um, he didn't mention the guy's name, and he said, oh, there was this guy in the war and the war ruined his life. He survived it, but it ruined his life. He hadn't been a happy man. And um, I just listened to that story and uh, it was interesting. Some years later, I was researching a book and I rang a guy called Doug Williamson, and I said, I hear you've written a book. And he said, yep, can I get a copy? He said, yeah, I'll send it to you. I said, oh, no, I'll come and meet you. So I go in the car, and I meet Doug, a really nice man. And he was uh, a navigator uh, on Lancasters. And he started telling me about his career, and I realised that this was the man who, who, whose life was ruined by the war. And, uh, and it's evidenced by the name of the title of his book, and I'll tell you the title of his book in a minute. But what happened was he was in 75 Squadron, and he was on the last operation of his tour. He could have gone home after this 30 ops, I think. And uh, on the way back from the target, they got attacked by a night fighter, and it set something on fire in the plane. That filled the fight, the plane with dense smoke. And um, it, it was really bad. But in fact, it was actually something that they could do something about. It was a cannon, something down the back of it, but I don't know, a mancaster, the caught fire. And the the uh, pilot sent the, the front gunner back to throw this thing out the window. And Ron was sitting and uh, um, Doug was sitting at his desk and this guy ran past and he thought, shit, we're bailing out, so he put on his parachute and bailed out. And as he came out under the canopy, the plane was carrying on quite nicely. And he thought, oh, shit, what have I done? And he was a POW for two or three years. And the title of his book is called The Aimless Wanderings of a (laughs) Ninkum (laughs) Poop. One last story. Um, Margaret Collins. Um, There was a Battle of Britain pilot called Basil Collins, spelled C-O-L-L-Y-N-S. um, Basil was killed later on in the war, flying a Mustang. And Margaret had gone; he'd gone there before the war. He was a very good pilot and a very nice man, by all accounts. Um, and Margaret had gone to Europe with him. And so when he was killed, she came home. And on the way home, she wrote a book called um, "It's called um, uh, Letters, Poems to a to a Pilot," I think. And it's a lovely book. It's a very small book. There. And uh, and anyway, I looked her up in the phone book because uh, it's it said that she had. Um, she came from Blenheim. So I looked her up in the phone book, and there was nobody called M. L. Collins, spelled like that in the, in the phone book in Blenheim, but there were a lot of people with that name. So I rang one up, and I said, you have a rally called Margaret? No. Uh, this guy said to me, ring my, my sister, she's into the genealogy of the family. So um, I uh, rang the sister, and she said, no, 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 we're called that. And she said, but I'll check. We, about a month later, this woman rang, rings back. And she says, yes, she said it was Margaret, married to Basil, and we're related this way. And Margaret uh, came back here, didn't like it, and went back to Europe and and retired, uh, spent a lot of time in East Africa, and retired and died in Spain. But she married again. And this was her name, she had a different name. It was a very unusual name, so I was disappointed not to have been able to get Margaret to sign her book. One day I was on the way to work, and I said, you know, if she came back here by any chance, uh, she might be back in Blenheim. So I looked it up and it was a very unusual name she had. So I looked her up at the phone book and there was ML with this name. So I rang her up. This really old woman, she was 95, answers the phone. She goes, yes. And I told her who I was. A totally different woman appeared on the phone. Good grief, she goes. Nobody's asked me about that book in 65 years. <laughs> and she'd just given all her uh, stuff about, um, about um, uh, Basil to the museum in Blenheim. So yeah, these are personal stories, and these people are more than fighter pilots, they're people. And if you ever get chances to go and talk to them, I would advise you do, it's quite rewarding, and time's marching by. Thanks. We've got to unveil this in the excitement of the moment. This is my advertisement, this is why I agreed to speak. Ellen um, Peart, who's here. Uh, Alan's a fighter pilot from uh, North Africa and Burma, with some considerable success. He told me I shouldn't talk about it, but you can talk to him. Um, Alan, um, from Alan's son, I asked Alan many times about what had happened to his flying gear, and he couldn't remember then his son told me that he had his helmet. I went and, and it was a mess, so I, it, all the stitching was gone and the rubber pieces from the ears had disappeared. One had been shaved off, so I asked... Robert if I could have a go at restoring it and um, I rang Alan I said your helmet looks like it's been in a war I said yep, I said what happened to the airpiece he said said, both people threw them away but I needed mine for a crash helmet on my motorbike and he said I fell off and went down the road on it (laughs) so the airpiece was gone, so after many months I restored it, it took took, I didn't know what I was doing, I had to learn how to stitch and leather turns to suede and I had to try to get it back to what it was, but this is what it looks like. You can ask Ellen about it. He probably doesn't like me showing his medals, <laughs> but they're actually just copies, but I just wanted to present it nicely so that when I'm old, I'll look at it and remember Alan. But it came out pretty good. So, so now for the advertisement. Ellen, <laughs> um, uh, some years ago, was uh, in the war, was involved in an action in Burma where he was... Um, um, overwhelmed by the enemy, him and one person took off, and uh, expecting two Japanese fighters to come, uh, uh, 25 did, and the other guy the squadron leader was shot down in the first minute. And Alan fought them off for 20 minutes or so, maybe 40, 30, a long time. And uh, just thinking about he had to get out of this, it was stressful, and he was about to land wheels up to disappear under the bush canopy, and they all left and went home to Northern Thailand. And Alan had a painting made of this, by uh, a painting done by Ron Falstow, one of our great artists, and uh, um, Ron convinced him to create some prints, and he's still got some. Uh, we sold these prints for a couple of hundred dollars, they're signed by Alan, Ron, uh, 485 squadron pilot in, in, uh, in Hamilton called Clark, and another uh, Spitfire pilot. And uh, today, if you're interested in buying one, we'll get them to you for $100, but also give you a copy of my book as well. We've um, just bought a few running out, but it would be quite nice to sell them. So I'll bring them in when we have a break and have a look. Thanks.
1: Thanks very much, Larry. That was really entertaining and uh, very interesting. Um, just a couple of housekeeping things here. Um, first, you know, we've mentioned that. Uh, Alan Pearts here. There are, we've got a few veterans here from World War II actually and I'd just like to acknowledge them and thank them for coming and uh, right here we've got Brian Cox, uh, we've got uh, Bob Wright who is also a pilot. Um, Brian Cox is well known of course for his um, many books and his years in uh, civil aviation as well. Uh, we've got Basil Williams. Where are you Basil? Over here. Is Basil who was uh, in Bomber Command uh, oh, and of course, Reg, who's going to speak next, but um, are there any others? Ah, yes, um, Bill Snowman as well. Now, you were up in Guadalcanal, was it? No, ground no. group,
0: thank you.
1: Yep, okay, yep, cool. Well, thank you very much um, for coming to the veterans. Well, that's, that's good. Well, our next speaker is World War II veteran Reg Wellington, who flew Corsairs in Number 22 Fighter Squadron. So we'll all welcome Reg Wellington.
3: Good morning, everybody. Um, I don't know whether I can keep going the speed of our last speaker, um, but he did mention a lot of books being thrown away after the war, uh, and that was the case with me up until just recently, and I'll tell you about that later on. But um, I looked at mine this morning, and um, 70 years ago, um, I was at Ashburton EFTS. I hadn't even sewn it in a tiger moth uh, 70 years ago today, um, but I didn't a week later. Uh, it was the um, nor'wester season, and we used to get up at five o'clock, start to fly at seven o'clock. Uh, the planes were all on the ground and tied down by 11 o'clock uh, because of the nor'westers. And uh, most days, we had all the irks on the station out, uh, running around, grabbing wingtips, as the Tigers landed, um, to make sure they were safe for tomorrow's flying. So, as I said, um, seven years ago, I was there. Um, I finished up twelve months later, in MRL, dropping bombs on Japanese. I dropped a thousand pound bomb and strafed Japanese um, after that. So, 22 Squadron, M- not many of you will have heard of 22 Squadron. Brian, perhaps, may have. Uh, as you all know, there were 13 Squadron, starting off from number 14, and um, as the pilots increased and the planes came forward, the numbers of squadrons increased, finishing up by number 26. And our trouble wasn't the supply of aircraft, it was the supply of pilots. Uh, number 14 Squadron, of course, uh, they took in pilots who had managed to come home from Singapore, uh, plus a few from the RAF, uh, plus a few um, instructors, and uh, of course we'd had our training where we did uh, air-to-air, air-to-ground, and that sort of thing. But as the new squadrons formed and did a tour, they would already release a couple of their pilots into (coughs) a new squadron and take in some bods out of uh, one of the OTUs. So um, in May 1944, uh, 22 Squadron was formed. Now, I'd never heard of 22 Squadron before. I'd have heard of 17, because I was posted to 17 Squadron. And I was there a fortnight, uh, and all of a sudden they called me into the office one day and said, uh, you and Dick Steele, you're to go to 22 because they're going to up to the Pacific next week. And that was how I got to 22. So, to tell you how a Squadron is formed, With the arrival in New Zealand of the new Corsair aircraft and the increasing availability of single-engine trained parts, their need in the Pacific theatre could be satisfied and on the 19th of June 1944, on authority of ADC-023 of 1994, 1944, Number 22 Squadron was formed on 26 SU at RNZ of Station Arbor. That meant that we operated the aircraft which were managed by the 26th SU. Um, We get a different aspect of that from the boys of the squadron. Uh, During the merry month of May, it appears that some intelligent question mark air department type decided it was time to have another fighter squadron organized. So looked at the previous squadron's number and promptly said 22 will be next. Ardmore was conscripting ground and is four of 16 squadrons most promising types were to be included in 22's role, and as no one else on station seemed remotely interested in 22 squadron, these four were left to carry on. P.O. Mills, then Flight Sergeant, smartly appointed himself CO, and conferred the intelligence officer job on pilot as a bar. Dave was slightly honoured, as no one had referred to him as being intelligent before. (laughs) <laughs> Unfortunately, and this is where the Flight Sergeants come in, Flight Sergeant Marshall Aaron Marshall and Strath Thompson wished to have a say. So to prevent any negliism, each morning a coin was tossed to decide who was to be CO for the day. <laughs> Nevertheless, after a week of hard work spent mainly at the bar and the bullet table, the four musketeers were reinforced by more bodies who seemed to drift in from various squadrons and also some for OTU. So eventually the squadron was formed. And the pilots of that for our first tour was, or their first tour, was from 16 Squadron, there were five pilots, from 17 Squadron five pilots, 18 Squadron two pilots, 19 Squadron two, there was one ex-instructor, there were seven direct from four OTU. There was one who had been a GR pilot, and one had come back from the RAF. So those were the ones who um, who arrived, and uh, they became the squadron. And then there was only one thing missing, and that was the CO. And it was still going on, they were still tossing the coin. Um, But anyway, a day or so later, a certain squadron leader, Bruce Thompson, arrived, and announced that he was taking command. Needless to say, the aforementioned types did not ask him to toss for it. (laughs)
1: So Bruce Thompson
3: Thompson took over the training of the squadron. Uh, The aircraft they had were Harvards and P-40s, but lurking in the background were the new uh, Corsairs. And um, after a couple of weeks of doing all sorts of training on Harvards and Kittyhawks, during which time there were at least three um, aircraft wrecked. Uh, One chap took off in Harvard and chopped up the rear end of a Kittyhawk. Uh, Another was not flying in kitties, uh, didn't have any flap, uh, decided he had to put it down somehow, thought he'd do it by pushing the stick forward, finished up on his nose. Uh, The third chap decided that he didn't want to do three pointers, he'd do two pointers, one wing and a wheel. So that was three aircraft which uh, the uh, SU weren't very happy about. But uh, time came when they started on the Corsairs. Uh, There was one thing wrong with the Corsair, it had this huge Pratt & Whitney horse engine, um, nine cylinder, twin row, 18 <laughs> cylinders altogether with a 13-foot prop. Um, it didn't like to start. Uh, up in the islands, we used cartridges, but they told us that you never use any more than three cartridges, otherwise it would all up, catch on fire. Um, but here in New Zealand, uh, there was all sorts of trouble. They didn't have any money, I think, for the cartridges. And someone dreamt up an ingenious idea they had a length of, um, I'd, I'd call it stacker rope, what we used to use at home on the farm for, for the haystacker. Uh, they had three leather cups. They would put one cup over one blade of the prop and then lean on down to the next blade and the third blade and you'd have at least three irks standing by and when the pilot said he was all right, he had uh, turned everything on in the cockpit. It would be all go, the irks would pull and theoretically the aircraft would start. Um, it didn't start if the pilot had forgotten to turn the mate switches on. And uh, that's when you heard from the, from the ground staff about that. <laughs> but anyway, um, in the end, the squadron took off. They They had six hours on the Corsairs. That's all they had when 22 left New Zealand the first time. Uh, their first stop was uh, Santos on Espirito Santo, uh, Palakula Field, and uh, they did more training there and uh, they were there until um, August. And um, they they went to Santo on the 6th or 7th of August. They were there until 29th of August. They were taken once again by 40 Squadron to um, uh, Canal. They did more training at Canal. On the 29th of August they were there. They then had finished training and of course the, the tour was gonna start properly at Torokina, which was right on the... up there, right on the coast. Empress Augusta Bay, Torokina was the first trip they had right on the coast. We later moved into Piva North. But they went to um, Torokina, and one of their first trips, they had to go all the way to um, uh, Rabaul, uh, escorting some uh, American aircraft, and um, they do those sort of things, plus um, more work in um, Bougainville. Uh, they weren't so much assisting the Australians at that time, it wasn't mentioned. We were just having strikes on the, um, on the thing. And uh, they stayed there until the 31st of October. So they had done um, about six weeks uh, forward, forward work on um, Bougainville went home, they had three weeks leave and we joined up again and this time we took in more new pilots and got rid of some of those who had come from 16 and 17. They had done three tours and the life of a fighter pilot in the RNZF was three tours. You did three tours and then you were left at home. You either became an instructor or a drogue tower or went to fighter gunnery school, um, whatever they had need for. Uh, You perhaps ran a desk, but uh, you didn't fly until you had a decent amount of of a spell. So on the second tour, uh, we took in one chap from uh, 30 Squadron, which had been uh, Avengers. Uh, We took in three from 17 Squadron, but the bulk of the new pilots came direct from 4OTU. So they had no, um, no training whatsoever. They had done 15 hours conversion onto Corsairs, which was at the Corsair Conversion Flight Armor, which was run by squadron leader, Doug Gregg, uh, who had the name of Grider Gregg. Uh, there was nothing that he didn't know about Corsairs. And after 15 hours, you were declared to be competent on that. Uh, so, the, um, in the second tour, um, I was at that stage, uh, had been in, finished my Corsair Conversion. I had gone with all the others to what they called Aircraft Pool and Hobsonville. Um, I'd only been there two days, when half of us were transferred to 17 Squadron. And um, I did two weeks of flying with 17 Squadron, got to know them, got to know the aircraft, got to know all the boys, was really happy about it, until I got called into the office, and I was told that um, I was going to 22 Squadron, uh, as long as a pilot officer, um, Dick Steel. Now I was a sergeant at that time um, so they only wanted a sergeant and a officer to take the place of someone who for some reason was being dropped out. I never found out why uh, we were put there but that meant that I was in a completely new squadron. I was with them from the, uh, the 6th of December until the 12th of December. I think I had four flights with the squadron. Um, we had a at um, one of the uh, places in Auckland, the uh, Kirindaui, or somewhere other than the where we had our big do. And um, we headed off in aircraft. The officers seemed to go in one aircraft and the sergeant pilots and flight sergeants went in another. We were in a um, C-47. Uh, we sat on canvas seats down the side. Uh, down the middle were the uh, two extra fuel tanks. Uh, that carried the fuel to last us the eight hour trip and behind that were all our kit bags. So it was a pretty full sort of an aircraft uh, for an eight hour trip to Santos and the first thing we noticed when we got out of Santos was the the heat of the place. And um, we were there uh, from the uh, 12th of December until the 3rd of January and it was there that we lost our first pilot. Um, He was a Sergeant Pilot, Walt Turner from Auckland, uh, was out on a um, uh, bombing uh, exercise. He called up to say that there were fumes in the cockpit and that was the last we heard he dived in and that was our first pilot loss. Um, We stayed there until, as I said, the uh, uh, 3rd of January when we did an overnight at Canal. Uh, The only time I'd been on Canal was just an overnighter and uh, we went from there the next day to Emeral, where we took over from another squadron um, because the aircraft stayed and took that squadron home we had to double up on the tents so we had four men tents with eight people living in it for one night so we got to know a few of the 19 squadron types um, we were there and we knew of course that, that there were going to be no jet aircraft to shoot down because um, the fighter pilots in the early days had, managed to shoot 99, and there were no japs coming up. Uh, we were there not to let them come up. Uh, our job was to patrol over the Carrying airstrip and make sure that no planes took off and that the airstripper was in such a condition that um, they wouldn't be able to take off. So when we went over in our patrols of carrying we'd go over in four aircraft. We'd be there for about three hours. We would take a 1,000-pound bomb or a 500-pound bomb, Uh, We would go and we'd drop our bomb, we'd climb up to 10,000 feet and then we would circle around and make sure that we had our eyes on all of the airstrips that were there and nobody could um, uh, take off and uh, we kept them down. We knew aircraft were there, we knew the Japs were there. Um, We did quite a bit of strafing in the area. Uh, We also did a constant air patrol of MRL, a Dawn patrol, on a dust patrol, we would get up and we would be actually over MRL before da- before daylight and would be over MRL um, until dusk, until it was landing in the dark. And um, we were there until we came home in, on the 4th of March. Uh, we came home, we overnighted at Santos because it wasn't possible to fly to Dakota from MRL all the way to New Zealand. So that was the second tour, and uh, some of the statistics, some of the, um, um, are what we did, uh, the first tour that that squadron did that I wasn't with, uh, Dawn and Dust patrols, they did 15, they did t- 22 anti-submarine patrols, anti-submarines were, uh, submarines were um, prominent in those days, they did 13 radar intercepts, they did 8 searches, they did 38 patrols, they did 70 strikes, in uh, which they bombed and strafed. Uh, they had 32 and a half flying days. Uh, they were weathered out for a six and a half. That meant they were there for 39 days. They d- dropped 178 500-pound GP bombs. They dropped 36 500 incendiaries. They dropped 222 1,000-pound GPs. Uh, and the 0.5 bullets that they expended, 270,000 bullets went out through the six guns of the of the aircraft and the operational hours during that tour was 1,214. Now the MRL tour that I've just talked about, um, the dawn and dusk patrols we did over MRL, we did 74 dawn ones, we did 30-73 dusk ones. I don't know where we missed one. Um, Over carrying the patrols we did 239. That meant we had aircraft, four aircraft over carrying all the time. Dumbo, we did Dumbo <coughs> escorts, uh, 42. And then on our MRL tour, um, we had a flight sergeant uh, and an officer who went out escorting. We always went to escort a Dumbo. The Dumbo would take off half an hour or an hour before the bombers took off. The Dumbo would go out and he would set himself down in the water, somewhere handy, close. Um, the two pilots were supposed to keep an eye on him and keep out of trouble. One of our pilots got shot up and had the ditch and came back with, um, with the Dumbo. Uh, he almost forgot to drop his belly tank. Um, he landed the wrong way, um, but he said he made a better landing than the Dumbo did when it got back to, uh, to base. Um, the, t- the, the hours that they did on that tour were 2,501. Uh, we came back and um, had our three weeks leave went back to Hardmore and um, formed up for another uh, tour, the, the third tour, which was going to be straight to Bougainville. There were four squadrons on Bougainville at all times. Uh, we were going to be one of them. Um, we got some new pilots. We lost some who had done their three tours. We took one from 14 squadron, one from 16 who had also done a fighter gunnery course. We took two um, from uh, one of the GR squadrons. Uh, we took three instructors who hadn't been away before, and only one person from 4OTU. Um, so we trained at Ardmore, and that was on the month of April. Um, I was going to be 21 uh, right about then. and um, was it 20? I forget now. I think have been mean, 20 so long ago. And um, they decided that we would have to go night flying one night. We didn't really think we needed to go night flying, because uh, we had been doing dawn and dusk patrols and that was all the, the night flying that uh, we needed to do. But the heads that ran the place said, you'll do night flying, and I understand that it had started about three weeks before us, when one of the squadrons were told they were going to do night flying, and they were a bit bullshit. Uh They weren't going to do night flying, so they got on the express and they headed south were picked up at Co uh, and brought back. And the wing commander said, right from now on, when I say, you're gonna go night flying, you'll go night flying. So our night flying was um, on a pretty tough sort of a day. We uh, didn't night fly from Mardmoor because there were no lights there. We had to go to Vanuapai. Uh, we flew the aircraft over in the, in the afternoon through all sorts of scuds, all sorts of weather, hanging around, there were uh, lows coming over that night and it uh, didn't look to be too good. In fact, flying was cancelled for a while. Uh, the um, uh, aircraft uh, that we took up to do testing in, uh, they had a delay. Um, we had one in C- uh, one uh, warrant officer in the, in the squadron and um, he was a bit of a hard case. He took an aircraft up for a test and the last I saw of him, he was upside down over the Whanuapai circuit um, at a thousand feet uh, testing an aircraft. Um, I don't think anything was done to him. But anyway, um, we had been going to do a bit of formation flying with some of the new pilots and uh, because of the weather coming over and the likelihood of having to cancel that, uh, that, we were each told to go on our own, do our own thing for an hour. I took off at 9 o'clock and um, I ran into a bank of uh, cloud over the um, Hoonoo Ranges. Uh, the, up there, who knows, the other one over... Um, west of Auckland, and uh, managed to get through, and uh, um, I managed to stooge around for about an hour on my own without getting into any trouble. One pilot uh, somehow managed to get himself lost. He finished up down at um, Opel Raglan. Uh, they vectored him home, um, but he didn't seem that he could keep his course, and um, uh, they sent another pilot down to uh, escort him home, uh, but he panicked and he decided that um, it wasn't for him to get out of the aircraft. Um, He tried to get out of the aircraft, but he was too late. He hit the Pocono, and that was our first pilot loss. Uh, When I was close to Fonellupai Landing, another pilot called up and asked for the ceiling uh, that night, that time, and uh, I gave him the ceiling as 1,200 feet, and um, nothing more was heard from him. Apart from the fact that uh, I was coming into, into land, I think I was probably about 500 feet coming in on a very dark night, and all I could see were the runway lights. And um, the he called up for landing instructions and they told him he was number one. And I didn't know where he was number one, whether he was number one in front or number one behind. So anything I could do was to get cracked and get down and get out of the road. So I did that, and I got out of the road and taxied back. Um, shut down, got out, um, got rid of a parachute, reported into the control tower or the, uh, the hut uh, where our flight lieutenant was in charge of flying. And then um, I went back to the crew room and the radio was on and everybody was talking about the, the pilot who had, uh, had hit the hill. Uh, we knew who he was. And um, um, all of a sudden my word went round where is uh, Joe Ferrick? Um, no one knew where Joe Ferrick was. He would called for landing instructions. He'd been given his number and uh, he hadn't turned up. So we did a quick count around. We counted aircraft. We sent uh, vehicles around the field. There was no aircraft there. That aircraft is still missing. So um, we had to put in uh, two more pilots and we went up to Bougainville. And this time it was definitely all assisting the Australians. Um, we flew in all sorts of formations. Uh, we had, in um, um, some cases, two of us would go on what we call a uh, Abel Charlie search, where we would go and look for targets of opportunity around the, around anywhere around the island we thought we'd find some Japs either in the gardens or in huts or in trucks, and uh, we had a lot of success with that. Um, we also flew eight aircraft strikes. We did three of them. And nine aircraft strikes, we had three. Twelve aircraft strikes, we had 13 times. Uh, we went out seven times with 20 aircraft, uh, three times 24 aircraft, six times 32 aircraft, three times with 36 aircraft, and we also did three strikes with 44 aircraft. Now, um, our squadron was usually at the back, and I was the last section, CDI section, I was what they call Taylor and Charlie. And um, if you want to fly in Charlie, 44 Corsairs, uh, not much above above cruising speed, Um, you're pumping the throttle when you get down to to number 44. And that was me. Um, But anyway, um, our support was with the Australians who were down. And I can show you here, perhaps, if you can still hear. This one. Yeah, we were up at the top of the bay there, Empress Augustus Bay. Uh, all the rivers down here were strongholds for the Japanese and uh, the Mobii um, and uh, one or two. We got down as far as the Mevo River and that was the, the biggest stronghold and um, the Australians got no further than that. We were there in April to June, early July and we were hitting targets in that area there was one here called the Piano Mission, which I remember hitting. Uh, we went in with three aircraft, four aircraft. Um, at one stage we had um, Australian aircraft, the Boomerang. They would go in and spot the aircraft, we call them the Smokey Joe. So he would go in and he would go and lay a smoke where we were to bomb. We would come in and um, bomb on the target. Uh, sometimes he's right, sometimes he is wrong. Uh, We got to the stage where our CO decided that he knew better than the Australians did and with the cooperation of the Australian intelligence people um, our CO Ralph Court became the um, Smokey Joe. So he would quite often go out uh, in a uh, group of perhaps 12 aircraft. He would be leading one section but he would go in first and he would drop his bomb or he would drop smoke and then he'd circle up high and he'd tell everybody where to bomb. We would go in and bomb uh, uh, lots of four, one after the other. And then after that was finished, we'd go in and it would strive. And we'd do at least two strafing runs. And um, uh, those were... that was what we did for the whole of the tour. Uh, there was one occasion uh, where the Australians were going down south, they were also going up north and there was a plantation called the um, Porton Plantation which was up in the north. The Australians wanted to go in there and force the Japanese up onto Tabuka. And um, uh, they had people on the ground they wanted to go and um, assist with a seaborne landing but I don't know why they did it, but they had a trial landing and of course the Japanese saw them having a trial landing and knew what they were going to do the next day. Where they landed was about 720 yards away from where they should have landed. Uh, The first landing barge got on a right, the second landing barge with all the heavy equipment got stranded on the sandbank. The Aussies had to get out and make their way to shore. They couldn't take any of the heavy equipment. The Japanese had pillboxes along the um, edge of the beach and um, uh, they immediately opened fire and the Japanese had a tough time. Uh, they actually lost 26 Australians and over 100 injured on and wounded on that, um, that exercise. They called in the corsairs in the end and uh, we went in. Uh, one of our pilots uh, felt sorry for them. Um, he got up off his seat, he undid his straps, he took out his dinghy and he threw it overboard to one of the Australian uh, Army chaps in the water. Whether that was any good or not I don't know, but um, uh, most of our work was helping the Australians and we did have a, um, have uh, I got it here somewhere? I must better find it. This but um, when the Japanese, when the Americans took over canal, went there, there were 60,000 Japanese by the, Australian, the time the Australians got in, there were 40,000. At the time the war finished, there were 23,000 there. Uh, they had lost 9,000 dead and um, about 1,300 injured, I think. Uh, the Australians had lost, I think, around about 1,200 dead and more injured. And um, our squadron had gone into Porton and they were presented with a what was called the Porton Pot. Uh, it was a shell made up Uh, with um, some .5 cartridges as a base. That is the port on pot with our intelligence officer and Frank Thomason holding it. Um, That was presented to our squadron before we left to come home. That pot has disappeared so if anybody knows where anything like that has probably got port on written on it. Um, And um, the Australian's concerned with the 31st, 51st, who came from the Cairns area in Australia. And um, uh, to get back to, to what Larry was saying about forgetting um, love books, the, um, the pilot we lost and is still missing, his wife was expecting. And uh, she remarried and had a son uh, to the pilot. And I've kept in touch with him all through. About six months ago, he said to me, My stepfather was in 22's battalion in the army. I've read their history. Did 22 squadron have a history? Um, I set about finding out what I could. I wrote to archives. They provided me with the operational reports of all those three tours of the squadron. Um, They came on a DVD with instructions that it wasn't to be published. But I haven't published it, I've merely printed it for the sons and daughters. And I've done 50 books uh, of this to the sons and daughters and grandsons of our pilots. Uh, also, in the back, we have a squadron diary. And um, I don't know who kept the diary, but I managed to get it. Now, One of our flight commanders was a chap the name named Skip Watson, uh, after the war, Skip Watson, DFC. Um, was in New Zealand and but he kept in touch with us all the way through and um, uh, he was a good bloke Skip he died about two years ago and um, his wife told me that in searching through his books they found a diary and um, she was going to type it up so she did type it up and she sent me a copy and um, the um, it is in here, the Squadron Diary of 22 Squadrons. And it's all in there. There's a CV on each pilot. Uh, they're not for printing. They're not very much for reading. Uh, they, you've got to believe half of what you're told and nothing what you read. Um, but everything is there. And as I said, there's, um, there's 50 of those people. <coughs> and um, uh, it's, what is only of interest to the squadron members, um, it even tells you which pilots which particular strike. So the sons and daughters who said, "Um, where were these places you You know, What did they do? Where was it? Uh, At least now they know. And uh, they know that their father was in that 44 aircraft strike. Um, But um, I've also got a copy here, and I printed it off uh, from the um, uh, morning bulletin in Rockhampton. And this is regarding uh, the Mevo Riverfront on Bougainville, um, ran just before we left, and it says here, then along came 88 corsairs of the RNZAF, each carrying a 1,000-pound bomb to add to the devastation. We didn't have 88 corsair bombs. <laughs> um, I don't know where he was. He was probably sitting down. He counted the aircraft, and as they came around to strife he kept on counting. So I think that uh, that uh, that's where the 88 came from. Anyway, so thank you very much for listening I hope I haven't warned you too much thank you
1: that was the Wings over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood